Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tate Cast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I was very lucky to be joined by Eric Turner, who is the VP of Market Intelligence at Masari Crypto. They are providing market intelligence that drives high conviction participation in crypto. They have a huge crypto newsletter that reaches 200,000 people. Eric is, of course, very knowledgeable of the crypto space, and I think that you guys are really going to enjoy the sort of high-level conversation that we were able to have as someone who's really in the day-to-day of the crypto world. So as the vice president of market research, he has some pretty unique insights, and I hope that you guys enjoy this conversation. If you want to get bonus episodes of the show, you can get them on patreon.com slash takecast, or you can just support the show by leaving a rating, a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right, everyone. uh, Very excited to welcome in Eric Turner, who is the VP of Market Intelligence at Masari to the show. I reached out to uh, to Mr. Turner's coworkers, and I, I was basically like, there's just a lot going on in the crypto world right now, and I would love to talk to someone more educated and more uh, more in in the in the trenches than myself. So uh, they they send me Eric's contact information. I said, "Looks great." So Eric, thank you very much for uh, for hopping on the show with me. Yeah, thank you for the invite. Um, so so VP of Market Intelligence. Actually, why don't you explain a little bit first about what Masari does and then your role inside of the company? Yeah, absolutely. So Masari is a crypto and data research firm. Uh, We really focus on providing a combination of deep quantitative information. Um, So markets data, blockchain data, really anything you'd want to know about uh, these public networks and protocols. And we complement that with a lot of our qualitative research. Um, So we have about a 50 person research team across a number of divisions. And we focus on uh, really providing all of that context and information for our end users to help them understand the crypto space. So the people that generally are looking at our site and using our products are a lot of the big crypto exchanges, traditional financial institutions, crypto projects themselves. We've actually seen, um, you know, some interest from sports teams and, you know, gaming companies and other people that are coming in to crypto through NFTs and, you know, all of these new and, and, you know, exciting things that are happening within the industry. Um, but to take a step back, you know, when you, you, you think of the job title, uh, Vice President, VP of Market Intelligence, uh, that really goes back to the way that we think about our firm, uh, you know, being more than just a data and research firm, but really a full stack market intelligence firm. So for our users, you know, understanding uh, everything that's happening on these protocols, everything that's happening within the industry, um, and then really being able to keep up to date with all of the changes, you know, all the way from maybe there's a new software release or something coming on Ethereum, Um, you know, governance that's happening within DAOs and decentralized organizations. Um, And then again, you know, hacks and attacks, anything that's going to impact them as they're using protocols, investing in, you know, crypto assets or um, actually operating these networks on a daily basis. So that is, um, well, kind of what would be your general relationship with um, traditional finance? Because that is that is what I think is sort of most interesting in crypto right now. I mean, you know, obviously crypto is in Bitcoin's in the headlines, Ethereum's in the headlines, NFTs are in the headlines for for lots of of you know disparate reasons. 
And what I am sort of most curious about right now is what is the traditional finance world, you know, big banks, hedge funds, investment firms, and things like that. Like, how are they interfacing with crypto right now? Because, uh, you know, there are obviously lots of things they could be doing and lots of rumors and, and you know, Visa buys a CryptoPunk and, and all of these things. So how are these traditional financial firms interfacing with crypto right now? Yeah, it actually is a really broad range. There's a really broad range of ways that they are um, dipping their toes into or, you know, really embracing crypto. If you'd ask me about this, uh, back when I worked in traditional finance, uh, back in, you know, 2017, when we had the last bull run in crypto, uh, my answer would have been very different. I think you see these market right. cycles happen within crypto, you see more adoption happen through each cycle. So a few years ago, it was a lot of people, you know, spinning up executives teams internally, talking a lot about what they could do in crypto, maybe writing some research, but nobody was actually going out there and taking action. Um, what we're seeing now is, you know, still a lot of big firms exploring things, dipping their toes in, but we're also seeing people, like you said, you know, Visa buying a crypto pump. We see people figuring out uh, not just how there's a business case for crypto, but starting to, you know, spin up some infrastructure internally. Um, figure out how to run a node, you know, run a validator on a network, um, figure out how they can custody assets for their clients. So it's a lot more real than it was in previous cycles. Uh, we're actually seeing, and again, this is mainly on the banking side where you're seeing people um, right. think about, you know, all of the services they could provide. And then as you mentioned, you know, on hedge, the hedge fund side, asset manager side with a lot of investment managers, they've actually started to actively allocate to Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum and some other crypto assets. So that is, that is, rather interesting because that has kind of been one of the you know the the bitcoin bros they love they love this idea that you know um you know no no portfolio can be complete without an allocation of bitcoin right you know it it, it does all of these amazing things and and um you know it it is the the key to you know a, a future without without political money and all these things and we can talk a little bit about that stuff later but i am uh, i i am mostly just wondering you know is this kind of a a widespread thing in the traditional financial world when when people are talking about you know their their retirement funds and 401ks and things like is it going to become uh, just like traditional like just expected that you know some portion of your portfolio is going to be stashed in in some form of crypto yeah, I think that the narrative for Bitcoin, you know, is always evolving and always changing. So early on, it was, you know, cheap and fast payments and you're competing against payment companies. And I really think it's kind of, you know, Bitcoin itself uh, has found its niche as this digital gold. And I think that not only resonates with individuals that are looking at something that is, you know, gold with all the benefits being digital and portable, um, and things that can actually, you know, truly custody. It's not like you're going to be carrying around a bunch of gold bars with you all the time. Uh, that resonates with a lot of individuals. And I think it's resonated with, you know, funds and investment managers as well. You've seen a lot of large funds come out, allocate to Bitcoin because of that reason, because they do see it as being, you know, this quote unquote digital gold. Um, so I, I do think it's becoming a lot more commonplace. You know, if you think about just the way that the macro background has been over the past few years, when you look at you know, all of the money that's being printed and all the inflation in the world and, you know, individuals and specifically asset managers looking for higher returns. They started to move a little bit further out on that risk curve. You know, they've started to allocate things to things that are going to get them uh, hopefully a higher return. And that kind of started with, you know, Bitcoin and you've seen some more people move into Ethereum. So I wouldn't be surprised if over the next five to 10 years, purely from an investment perspective, um, you do see people allocating in, you know, pension funds and large funds to Bitcoin and some of the larger crypto assets. Uh, I don't ever see them really getting, you know, not within the next, you know, five to 10 years, getting really deep into the longer tail of assets. But I certainly think a case could be made for some of the larger uh, blue chip and, you know, high market cap assets. Yeah. So, so for example, kind of what I'm talking about is in, in that 2017 bull run, I, I called my Edward Jones guy. And I was like, you know, I would like because and I, you know, I have this money in, in mutual funds and things like that. And I call him and I'm like, you know, I would like to allocate um, some percentage of this into Bitcoin. And not only not only did he, you know, not not know how to do that, but was not, you know, legally allowed to do that. Like at that point, which would have been um, early 2017, it's like he didn't even have the ability to, you know, get onto his trading desk or whatever and, and actually do that. 
And I, I, I guess I am not asked recently because I, I just, I self custody. Like I think a lot of, a lot of people who are super into crypto do, but for example, you know, if your, if your dad was like, you know what, I want to, I want to get some exposure to Bitcoin. Would he be able to do that? Like, is it, is it legally possible to call your Edward Jones guy or your Charles Schwab guy and have them do that? Or is it all still through, um, the, the grayscale stuff at this point? Yeah, I think Grayscale continues to be, you know, probably the most prominent vehicle there. Uh, people have launched, you know, some other funds that are slightly similar. Um, we're still waiting for that, you know, possibility of having a true Bitcoin ETF, um, you know, with spot Bitcoin, which I think would be uh, really open up the floodgates for a lot of people in those types of accounts. Um, but there is a lot of work being done. And I think it goes back to you know, kind of what you mentioned, the legality of it, which is really the regulations around these firms needing to have, um, you know, true custodians to hold these assets for them, you know, just for uh, their client safety. Um, you know, it's part of those regulations, but uh, we're getting there. I think more and more firms are about to launch these types of services. Um, you know, one way you can tell this is if you look at the career pages for big banks, they right. are uh, hiring people in their wealth management divisions to start running these teams. Uh, and I can personally say, you know, conversations I've had with uh, investment advisory firms, um, they're really looking at, you know, not just Bitcoin, but as I mentioned, Ethereum, some of the other assets as things they could offer directly to clients in, you know, I'd say maybe the next couple of years. So I, I think sort of the, the natural evolution from that conversation is how does cryptocurrency play a role in a non-revolutionary future? You know, because a lot of what we hear about Bitcoin right now is, you know, it's, it's, um, it is non-sovereign or it is it is sovereign money. It's money that is not controlled by a government. And, you know, we hear about, uh, you know, Web3 and things are, are being built on Ethereum and on Solana, uh, you know, removed from big businesses, removed from huge companies with, with boards of directors and things like that. But I, I, I think that anything involving that is is very far off. And so I, I've and I've just kind of been playing around with this idea recently is like, you know, what role do these major cryptocurrencies play in a non-revolutionary future, you know, where, where governments are, are not overthrown and we still have, you know, payment processors and Amazon and these massive corporations. Um, so kind of what is your, what are your, some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the, you know, if you'd asked me a few years ago, um, my opinion would have been that there is a future where you could have, as people call it, you know, hyper Bitcoinization. You have Bitcoin as, you know, a prominent um, currency, a prominent means of payment, something that people are using. And, you know, it is this revolutionary thing that um, kind of takes over governments and everything like that. I tend to think in the world we live in right now, we'll probably see slow adoption of crypto assets. Um, I don't think it's going to be something where Bitcoin becomes the world's reserve currency. I think if you look at the way that the world's evolving right now, there is a chance where we have multiple reserve currencies. We have multiple sure. um, you know, different currencies being used in trade. And I think there is a potential for some governments uh, maybe to allocate Bitcoin there. Um, I think outside of that, you're going to see a different type of adoption. You know, As you mentioned, there are these layer one networks like Ethereum and Solana and all of these things that are powering other protocols. Um, those currencies, I think, are going to be more predominantly used within you know, a business sense, um, less so that they're actually a currency or, you know, some sort of legal tender. Uh, I think that would always be, you know, where Bitcoin would kind of shine and that that would be the niche there. But all these other currencies will continue to coexist. And, you know, as we move towards this world where they are increasingly more operable between each other and these networks can work together, um, you'll see an explosion of crypto assets that are probably used in more of a business sense. So for example, businesses that need to run infrastructure allocating to these assets. They need to use them as payments. They need to hold them. Um, and then they, of course, also become investments at the same time. So a, a big part of that is what these large companies would do if they did become payments, because, you know, they're, they're of course, they're, I mean, right now you can buy goods and services with Bitcoin via, uh, you know, MoonPay and, and some other, you know, conversion softwares. There, there are some crypto credit cards out there that will, you know, use, you can use the credit card, you can have your Bitcoin, your Ethereum on there, and it converts as fiat 
the the real question then becomes at what point do massive companies start holding bitcoin and ethereum and these other tokens on their balance sheet not you know you know we've seen the example of uh, microstrategy and michael saylor and um you know i think it's fair to say that this strategy has not caught on you know we don't have we we don't have you know jeff bezos adding bitcoin <laughs> to to the uh, to the, the the balance sheet but i do wonder if given the fact that there are so many people in less financially privileged countries than the country that we live in who are using bitcoin as a you know the lightning network and using it as a payment layer like do you actually i mean you know you're just your opinion it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be you know scientifically researched but do you foresee a day where some of these large you know multinational corporations do start accepting payments in crypto and just holding it on their balance sheet instead of converting I think it's possible. Um, I think the Trojan horse here is actually going to be, you know, when you mentioned individuals and you mentioned accepting payments. Uh, interestingly, I, I think the Trojan horse to get people into crypto is going to be stable coins. It is going to be something that right. people are familiar with. Uh, you look at something that's pegged to a dollar. Um, there already are, you know, corporations allocating to stable coins on their balance sheet because they can get a slightly higher yield than the, what they get in the bank deposit. I think as you look at things like stable coins, um, that is probably where we're gonna see corporations move towards first because they're already moving there. And you're one step away from everything else in crypto at that point. You know, that, that's, that's your entryway into DeFi and you know, using these networks, using these protocols. Um, I think that's a very real possibility. And if you look around the world, a lot of people are already using these, you know, to get paid, to hold their savings um, as individuals. I think we've seen experiments again with Bitcoin um, and similar things as well. My personal opinion is Bitcoin is being used less as a payment method. And I think it's being used more as an investment. Again, getting back to that, you know, thesis of a digital gold, you don't want to spend your gold on a day-to-day -day basis. You don't want to spend what you're allocating as a, you know, uh, quote unquote, you know, semi-stable um, investment, you want to be spending something that's a little bit, you know, easier to spend. Uh, and I think stable coins really fill that gap right now. Yeah. So is there, is there, um, you know, traditional financial market interest in the DeFi platforms? You know, I, I mean, I guess it sounds like there is that there are some of these traditional financial, uh, you know, gatherings of wealth that are uh, you know, staking USDC or, or Tether or whatever. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I think that you're going to see over the next, uh, you know, couple of years, a real explosion, not in protocols or networks or, you know, crypto assets that are being built, but in infrastructure in the back end that can support corporations, banks, investment managers, um, allocating into, you know, stable coins or DeFi protocols. I don't think we're at the point where we're going to see, you know, somebody at a bank uh, set up a MetaMask wallet and go around in and start playing around on, you know, staking their stable coins or, you know, using DeFi platforms. But there are going to be services that look very traditional and look like something that a bank would be used to, um, where they're going to, on the back end, be powered by a variety of DeFi protocols. You know, that's what is most exciting about this centralized finance space is that composability where you can piece together a lending protocol with an investment protocol um, and create something new. And for a lot of individual users, as well as institutional users, they're not going to need to actually know what that back end and what that infrastructure looks like. You know, you and I, we go around, we go in and we play with these things, but it's almost like playing with the guts of the internet. Uh, you know, you're seeing how the, the inner workings are. Uh, a lot of the, this is going to be abstracted away, would be my guess, guess uh, over the next few years. And it's going to look a lot like, you know, any traditional bank app or fintech app that uh, people are using. Which is, and, and I mean, you just hit on it right there. Like that is also true about the traditional finance world. You know, so many people have their, their 401k, their retirement fund, their whatever, but they're not, you know, they're, they're not involved in the day-to-day, -day, you know, trading of whatever the asset firm is. They're not, you know, they're not caring about the specific trades or positions. All they care about is that, you know, in, in 40 years, the their money is there the way they expected it to be. So it, so in a sense, it's not even really that big of a change. 
No, but I think the one thing that is revolutionary within the crypto space in this Web3 world is um, as an individual, if you want to go in and you want to use the exact same services your bank is using, if you want to have that transparency and that ability to use these services and these protocols, you can do it because it's open and it's permissionless. So you couldn't do that right now if you think about the way our traditional financial system works. Um, but in this new Web3 world, you have the ability and you have the power to go in and really control you know, the way that you invest your money and, and interact with it. Yeah, you could see, you know, you could see all the trades that are being made, exactly how much when it was sent, all that, which I mean, I'm, you know, I think obviously we are, we are all for that. There should be way more um, transparency in, in the financial world, which is, uh, which is definitely good. So, you know, the, the, the big subtext to this entire conversation is what is going to happen in a, in a regulation sense, right? So we, we have the, uh, the Biden executive order. Right now, we have the European Union trying to rule on, on proof of work and, and Bitcoin and things like that. And so much of what is going to happen in the next five to 10 years in the cryptocurrency space is sort of being decided right now by regulators. So what, what is your sense of the, the tenor of that conversation? Yeah, I think it's become increasingly you know, a hot topic um, as we've seen. I actually think the executive order that came out of the Biden administration was pretty promising. Yeah. If you read the language and you read what they're actually looking to do, uh, they're looking to learn more about the space. You know, There are no real actions or real suggestions or recommendations that have come out um, that are you know, explicitly negative for the industry. And I think we're gonna continue to see, if you think about it, uh, governments that want to embrace innovation. I think it'll be rocky. Um, I think it's there's still a lot of education to do. Um, there obviously are some governments that are you know relatively hostile towards crypto, and there's there's some that that are uh, pretty accepting of it. But I think as an industry, you know, it's become large enough that it is something that is very serious. Um, I think it was laughed at for a long time, but if you just look at the amount of capital and the amount of large organizations that are now involved in the space. Um, I'm relatively optimistic at where we end up. I think we likely will see uh, some, you know, enforcement actions and things come out of the SEC just around, uh, you know, a lot of the way that uh, token sales have been conducted recently and, uh, you know, some of the things happening on DeFi and DeFi protocols. Um, but at the end of the day, I think where you would actually see regulation would be around the edges. So if you think about it, you know, it's not like you're going to ban uh, crypto network itself ban Ethereum or ban the ability to operate these because you can't. What you can do is you can regulate the exchanges. You can regulate where crypto touch touches fiat and you know some things around the edges where it's the exchanges and the custodians. Um, I think that's where most of the discussions will head. I don't think that the you know idea of banning proof of work or um, anything like that has legs uh, in a lot of the Western countries. Uh, I know China was able to ban it over there. Um, but I think from what I've heard, you know, those conversations aren't as important and aren't really, um, they don't really have the teeth that, you know, regular regulating around the edges does. So are you, I mean, is there, is there reason to be concerned about the way that exchanges, you know, for example, in, in the United States that, um, well, I think it's true that the biggest exchange in the United States is, is Coinbase. I mean, maybe more people on ramp via cash app or whatever, or, or strike, but I mean, they're, they're sort of the, the top exchange. I mean, are we concerned that there would be regulations that are, are putting some of these exchanges in a vice grip, you know, uh, limiting, limiting some of the transactions or, or, you know, onerous tax reporting or anything like that? I think for the most part, uh, the exchanges in the U.S. are, you know, compliant with regulations. So they already have things that right. the government would be concerned about. They have KYC in place and all of these other things. You know, they do have tax reporting. Um, I think that's another issue that, you know, is, is hopefully going to be resolved soon is just the idea of reporting crypto taxes and getting clarity around all of that from the IRS. But I think um, I think the U.S. exchanges are in a pretty good place. Um, I'm not too sure what the regulations would look like there, you know, and then obviously, if you look at it on a global scale, uh, and you've already seen this happen in some cases where exchanges that aren't, you know, conducting KYC up to the standards of the US or anything like that, um, they might have to leave the country. I think that is where you're going to see, um, you know, more of the, not necessarily enforcement or anything like that, but, you know, at least rhetoric um, from regulators around who should be operating where.
and it, it's um you know of course you know more power to people uh like like coin center and, and places like that that have uh you know been doing education with legislators in the united states because and and again you know i a lot of complex terminology and um you know very very policy wonky type stuff but the there was originally language in for crypto bill that would have been awful for crypto in the united states right so it would have um if i if i remember correctly it would have made uh miners attempt to kyc um on like from their transactionary blocks like uh, so it so it does actually seem like you know real progress has been made in the regulatory sphere, even if it hasn't you know even if pen has not met paper yet. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I think it's going to be a continuing issue of education. I think um, you know you look at some of the ways that these bills are phrased, or you know any of these recommendations um, from you know Congress or from regulators. It is really a matter of nuance and i think you've seen this and you know i think it was um the recent uh bill that came out from senator warren you know it just ends up being so broad in some of the way that, that yeah. these things are phrased that it's going to impact you know not only people that are minors but anyone that's really working on open source protocols and it it just doesn't you know you can't do that you can't enforce it um, and I think as people become more educated, they'll really understand the nuance of somebody that's running a node, somebody that's writing an open source, you know, piece of software and somebody that is at the end of the day, maybe running a trading platform that does require a different degree of regulation. So that is, um, uh, an, you know, another, another pretty important aspect here is like the, the amount of people building on these various platforms. And I talked to, um, Laura Shin who wrote the Cryptopians and host the Unchained podcast. Uh, she was on the show last week, and you know she had mentioned that um, I think I believe it was she said twenty percent of all developers in crypto right now. So I mean that you know that means uh, exchange devs, Bitcoin devs, you know, and then all these other layer two solutions and things like that. They're they're all working um, on Ethereum. And one of the things that I just thought of while you were talking is. You know that this education that we're doing with legislators is all taking place because these people i mean not only did they not grow up in the era of crypto a lot of these people didn't even grow up with the internet but like the the next wave of very tech savvy legislators and people who grew up i you know I, they're they're you see these tweets all the time in crypto twitter about you know there oh there are courses at all these ivy league schools and you know economists at these schools are taking it very seriously so I, I, I just am sort of thinking, like, is there a, a whole generation of people who have already been crypto pilled who are basically going to be calling all the shots in like 20 years? <laughs> I think it's uh, I think it's possible. And, and I think that's why I am incredibly excited about the industry in general. If you think about you know, not just politicians and people that are going to be in positions of power deeply understanding the space and, and really being able to skip that, you know, initial what is a blockchain education. Um, if you look at, you know, younger generations today, they're growing up in what is essentially a crypto native world. And, you know, you have people playing games that are really built on blockchain. You have people buying NFTs. You have people that are using crypto uh, to pay their friends. They're investing in crypto. And if you think about that massive shift, uh, that was almost like what you know E-Trade and these uh, these brokers were back in the day when the internet first started and gave people that ability to uh, you know invest and really start to take control of their financial future. And then you expand that into gaming and everything else. I think that it, it really is you know not a question of if and when. It's it's just really inevitable at this point that we are going to live in a much more crypto focused and you know blockchain native world. So what are what are some of the things that are being built right now that are most exciting to you and to uh, your your coworkers at Masari? Yeah, and you know if you look around the industry, uh, you certainly have to caveat everything with it is still very early, and sure. just yeah. because things are starting to work doesn't mean they have adoption. Um, you know, I think the idea of blockchain uh, based gaming is very exciting, but you know you look at a lot of the games and maybe eight hundred people max are playing them. Uh, right. It is certainly not at the level you're going to see with, you know, traditional gaming. Uh, but I do think that the fact that these Web3 protocols and within Web3, 
you have the ability to, you know, not only create content and consume content, you have the ability to own content. That is what is most exciting to me. And uh, I mentioned it earlier, you know, this concept of composability where these applications can work together very naturally. Uh, that's really what's most exciting. You're coming out of this, you know, coming to this era of uh, truly web three protocols that you can own things you're using in a game. You can own NFTs. You can use those as collateral to take out loans. You can do all of this within, you know, very simple applications um, that are going to soon be very simple front ends. And it's because these protocols are all able to work together on the back end. So really this evolution of, you know, so many different things happening in the industry, but all of them being able to interoperate and all of them being able to be built on each other, kind of like Legos or building blocks. I think that's what's most exciting right now. And, you know, as I said, you're going to see it in fits and starts and things like decentralized finance will be really popular and then they'll die down for a little bit. That doesn't mean people aren't still building. Um, it just means that crypto runs in hype cycles and you'll see different things become popular. Yeah, I mean, the um, the first very successful NFT functioning video game is going to be like uh, genre breaking. Uh, gaming is so huge and there there is such a need for it. I don't know. I don't know how much you play video games. Um, I, I play less now than I did, you know, when I was in, in college and stuff, but, um, you know, like all, all the microtransactions that exist in video games right now, and then a new game comes out and you just, you just kind of leave all of that behind. Like that, that was, um, when I first started to learn about NFTs, that was like the, the first thought that I had was that owning your, just something as simple as, as actually owning your in-game items and having a record of that and being able to transition those is like, I mean, that, that truly revolutionizes like a multi-billion dollar industry. And there are, there are also, and you know, everyone who has an experience in an industry is going to have their, their own example of that, I think. Exactly. It's, it's going to be across industries, but gaming is a great example. If you think about how much people spend on skins that only exist within that single game, um, you know, in-game items that, as you said, they can't transfer. They're not portable between these different games, or you can't really do anything with them outside of that game. I think you're going to see uh, you're going to see a real clash between established institutions in this space, which is interesting because you always thought it'd be the financial institutions fighting crypto. But if you look in things like the gaming world right now, you're going to have institutions that don't want to lose that revenue stream of having in-game items, and every time they release a game, you're going to have to buy something new. Uh, and then you're going to have the ones that are, in my opinion, the only ones that are going to succeed that actually embrace this early on, figure out how to monetize it themselves but also make it a better experience for the people that are playing their games. Yeah, it does seem like there is, for whatever reason, you know, a very real uh, anti-crypto sentiment in gaming right now uh, for, for whatever reason. And, and you know, there's anti-crypto sentiments in, in lots of sectors for, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. And some, uh, you know, honestly, like some anti-crypto perspectives do make sense to me at like a, a more basic level and some of them don't but like the the uh the the anti-nft stance inside of gaming uh d has made no sense to me and i guess it's just mostly because uh the people are are so sick of being microtransacted to death that they don't want anything else sold to them which i suppose i can understand at um at some level but there you know there is a negative mindset that all of these companies that want to work in the web three space and, and crypto space will have to overcome because, you know, nothing changes that fast in society, really, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting to me as well, because it's an area that I think individuals would actually benefit. I think there's a lot of promise there for them, but there has been negative sentiment. And I was thinking about this the other day and having conversations with people. What it really boils down to is People are afraid of change and we're starting to see innovation come into new spaces. So crypto used to be very focused on the financial aspect of it. You started with Bitcoin, which really was supposed to be purely financial. And if you think about the past decade, so many of those battles on education have been fought with people at financial institutions, people thinking of it from a financial aspect, where now you're getting into art and culture and games you're getting into this space that nobody really knows what to do with these new ideas um, and all of these things happening. And then of course, with anything that's new, you're gonna end up with you know, 
a lot of things that work, you're going to end up with a lot of scams, a lot of opportunists. And I think that is going to change. I think people will start to understand what's happening, feel a little bit less scared, um, and hopefully start to embrace things. You know, again, I, I think we're in this uh, more constrained cycle where adoption is going to be, you know, in two to three year sprints as opposed to a decade, which it almost initially took. Right. Uh, so that you you did just hit on something um, a little interesting there, which is the you know the scams, right? So I don't think anyone anyone being intellectually honest would say you know there are no scams in crypto. I think you'd be you'd be much more likely to say you know there are scams everywhere in business and and probably you know no no bigger scam than a savings account, right, where your money does absolutely nothing for you and and loses <laughs> value. Um, but I, I I'm I'm very curious from the your your perspective on a lot of the 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 tokenomics of a lot of these airdrops right airdrops are it's it's kind of that that's kind of like the the big buzzword inside of crypto right now of course we just had the yuga labs airdrop with their with their ape coin but they were far from the first to do this right all of these tokens um you're all these projects uh adding liquidity to these pools and then airdropping the tokens we've seen NFT marketplaces do this. There, there are rumors of um, OpenSea doing this, and and so on and so forth. So, kind of, what do you make of these tokenomics projects that exist for for uh, honestly very niche and small reasons, and and a small you know total addressable market? Yeah, I, I mean, there certainly are, as there would be in any new fast moving industry that has you know money sloshing around, plenty of scams, plenty of opportunists. Um, we started the company you know, back in 2017, 2018, because of all the scams we saw in the ICO industry, you know, just right. trying to protect people and help them make smarter decisions. Uh, what we're seeing today with a lot of these airdrops on protocols, it's, um, you know, I, I think it's a lot better than what we've seen in the past. I think that people have learned from their mistakes about selling a token for something that doesn't exist yet. In my mind, having a token it needs to have a purpose. So if that purpose happens to be rewarding your users and there is some sort of mechanism that makes it valuable in the future, that sounds great. Uh, I think the big use case now for tokens that makes a lot of sense is for governing protocols. These are decentralized protocols or at least most of them want to be. So you don't yeah. have a management team making decisions and you know really moving the roadmap forward. If you have people that are using this, people that have helped build that early community, make a protocol or a network successful, uh, make an NFT collection successful, whatever it may be, if that token is used to govern what happens on a day-to-day -day basis or govern what happens in the future of these protocols, I think that concept of you know DAOs and decentralized organizations is really where a lot of the world is going to move. And you know this gets back to the the conversation we had around adoption. Think about a world where there's a DAO that manages a gaming protocol, and you all of a sudden have these large companies that need to come in. They need to own tokens to participate in what happens on this, this protocol. Maybe they're building on it or, you know, they partnered with them. Um, you start to see adoption that way. You know, you, you actually have this concept where I don't think organizations as we know them will go away. You won't lose the idea of a corporation or whatever it may be, but you'll have a parallel system of decentralized organizations and they'll, they'll need to work together. Um, and what that looks like, I'm not, not quite sure. But I do think it's very interesting to think about what that world looks like where maybe somebody at a large uh, company, you know, they're in charge of decentralized governance and making decisions for senior leadership on how they interact with and steward forward decentralized protocols that they use. Yeah, I mean, so DAOs are a fascinating concept because I, and especially I think, by the way, in the United States, I think we are sort of uniquely primed to be interested in DAOs because of you know, what we've been taught since we're kids, right? We're democratically elected and, and everyone gets to vote and you you make all these decisions as a collective. And that is, you know, I mean, at the heart of what a DAO is, that is what they are supposed to do. Now, now one common criticism I have heard of DAOs that actually makes a ton of sense to me um, from, from people who've been around in crypto for a long time, is, well, it's, it's twofold. One is the idea of like, oh, I feel really incentivized to govern when my token goes up in price, right? So it's like it's like a little bit cynical of being like, you know, why why does a token need to cost this much for me to decide? And then also that when you when you 
have so many decisions to be made. So, you know, the, the very popular example is, is, um, you know, a Dow buying a sports team, right? So a Dow buys the Yankees or whatever in this, in this, or the pirates, you know, much more, much more possible for them to do that. Um, having every decision run through the Dow would be a terrible idea because you'd always be voting. And, uh, you know, so many of the decisions would be split, but maybe there is a future where DAOs are used to empower people inside of these organizations. You know, there's a DAO done on like, okay, we're, we're hiring a new scout or we're hiring a, a group of new scouts for the pirates. And then we empower these people to do their jobs. Um, so, I mean, what, what have conversations about DAOs been like for, uh, for you guys at Masari? Yeah, so I think a lot of the critiques on DAOs as they exist today are probably fair, where you have too many people trying to make simple decisions. And what ends up happening is you just end up with nobody wanting to vote on anything. And voter apathy is a huge issue where there are yeah. important proposals. They might fail to reach quorum. Uh, people, you know, one person might vote. And because nobody else voted, they just get something pushed through. I do think that the structure of DAOs will look a lot different than they do today. I think it is a little too idealistic to think that everybody can come in and make every important decision uh, on what could be a multi-billion or multi-trillion dollar network or protocol. I do think you're going to see smaller committees uh, structured within DAOs. You know? So people that yeah. have that expertise, they'll make the decisions on a committee maybe about spending on the treasury or you know, on hiring new employees. And it's done in a more transparent and easier to uh, manage fashion than what we have today. You're starting to see it. You know, we, we actually launched a tool on Masari called Governor that's all about tracking governance proposals and providing some insights there. And if you look at the way that you know, a lot of these protocols are structured, they're starting to move in that way where you have some people managing the protocol, you have other people maybe managing treasury spending and what's happening on the financial side. I think we'll continue to see that evolve. And I think that's where, you know, almost in a working group or committee fashion, you'll also see uh, some traditional institutions start to get involved at, you know, these, these smaller levels. So, uh, and the, you know, kind of the, the last thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on are, are just NFTs in general, right? So the, the way that they exist now is, I mean, let's just be honest, it's, it's profile pictures, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's pictures that people like to look at and, and, you know, there are so, so many memes and jokes, you know, it's, it's about the community and, and apes versus punks and, you know, the micro stuff of, of, uh, you know, uh, Marvel labs changing hands and, and things like that. But I, I, I'm just, I'm just always curious people's thoughts on what their minds drift to for the application of what an actual non-fungible token could be in a society where ownership is, is very important, I think. Yeah, it's funny to me that NFTs have become the shorthand for you know, what is essentially digital art, when at the right. end of the day, it really is just a non-fungible token standard. It is just showing that you own something within the digital world. So a lot of the applications early on have been interesting to see. I think the profile pictures are fun. And if people want to play around with those, um, you know, by all means, and if it does give them a sense of community, I'm sure for many it does. But there are more interesting use cases when you start to look at real ownership and you start to see a lot of uh, ability for creators to launch new things in the world and get paid without middlemen, without you know, record companies or without you know, auction houses for their art. Uh, they're able to actually get recurring revenue as things are sold in the future, um, you know, through um, royalties down the road with a lot of these NFT protocols. I think we're going to see this really continue to evolve, at least early on, within that digital art and that digital culture space where that NFT does give you the ability to show that you own a profile picture, show that you own a piece of art, uh, participate maybe in a private discussion group or Discord related to that NFT. But what ultimately really matters here is it's just a standard to prove ownership in a digital world. And that is going to have huge implications with, when you think about the fact that you could have the title to a car or to a house as an NFT. You can sign a signature showing that you own this and you can prove digital ownership very, very easily uh, with a mobile phone. You're getting rid of all of that paperwork. And then if you start to get back to being able to build on top of things, 
you can use a DeFi protocol to get a mortgage, to refinance your house. You can do all of these things on all of these new protocols. And it all goes back to proving that you own this individual item, um, you know, be it in a digital or the real world. I think there's a lot to be done there. I think that there are going to be a lot of real world issues, uh, specifically, you know, on the legal and contract side, how we port that over to a digital world. But I think there's a massive, massive opportunity to move just beyond and not to minimize it, but, you know, just that art and kind of, uh, you know, profile picture world that we see today. Yeah, like exactly what you said. The profile pictures are fun. I I I like I have the profile pictures. I I I meant this, you know, stupid cuddly kangaroos or whatever. Like it's it's very <laughs> fun. Um but the 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 far more interesting application uh I mean it you know and and again, this is this is such cliché speak. I I hardly even want to go there, but like, you know, the ability to disrupt traditional industries with provable ownership of items is so huge. And I, I actually, uh, they were, they talked about this in the morning brew this morning that um, several uh, large record companies are hiring blockchain experts, right? Are, are hiring uh, devs and things like that because they, they foresee a future where they are losing out on, on artists and, and losing out on record deals because NFTs, are, are such a better business model. The royalty model and the ownership model is so much better for musical artists in like with, with provable ownership and with, you know, essentially kind of leasing songs out to people than it is, you know, the, the 0. 0.00 cent per play on Spotify model. Yeah. And I honestly think that a lot of these record labels and uh, you know, existing companies are going to maybe hire some people to explore some blockchain projects and you know figure out how to get involved. They'll maybe hire a couple people to do it and they're gonna move too slow um, because at the end of the day, as this compounds and you think about creators as individuals, they have access to everything that they need already. They can get recording equipment, they have access to the internet. And now if they have the ability to start to get paid easily and with better terms, they're not going to need a record label. They're not going to need anything. Um, distribution can all be done online. So they need to kind of wake up to that and move a lot faster than they are. Um, it's not hiring a couple people. You're going to need a specialist to figure out every piece of it, you know, from how these are monetized in the future, how the networks work, where you should be releasing these things and how you retain talent. So it'll be interesting to see who actually wins that battle uh, a few years down the road. Okay, so you have to indulge me here a little bit as we as we wrap up. So so Bitcoin definitely my first love. Um, you know I think it is I think it is the best crypto. It, my, in my opinion, it is the best cryptocurrency. Doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean I don't like Ethereum. Doesn't mean I don't like Solana or or Stables or whatever. Um, but they're they're the the sort of the new working theory for Bitcoin maximalists. I find fairly convincing, actually far more convincing than Bitcoin becoming the world reserve currency or everyone transacting in, in Bitcoin uh, more, more so than the Lightning Network and, and all these things, which is that if and when a major world power decides that it is too risky to not have Bitcoin on their, on their balance sheet, and so let's say Germany wakes up tomorrow and it's like, you know what, we're going to buy a thousand Bitcoins because we just, we need it. We have gold, we have dollars, we have oil reserves. It's, it's just too risky to have no Bitcoin. Then, of course, if Germany does it, then France needs to do it. Then England needs to do it. Then the United States needs to do it. How convincing do you find this use case and argument for Bitcoin? So my personal opinion on the matter has always been that I don't think we're going to see, you know, a large nation like a G7 nation be the first to make a move into right. Bitcoin, you know, in a central bank or on their balance sheet. I do think that it makes a lot of sense for, you know, maybe a second or third tier nation that is competing or not competing, but they're dealing with the competition between G7 nations wanting to give themselves a little bit of autonomy and wanting to get outside of the debates and arguments over the reserve currencies of the world and they want to set their own terms on some things. I think you're going to see the dominoes start to fall there where 
a couple of these governments start to actually embrace Bitcoin, start to put it on their balance sheets and actually hold it along with all of the other reserves that they have. That's how, in my mind, things start to shape up. And then it's really up for, you know, it's up to these larger governments and, you know, the G7, if you really think about it, to decide what they're going to do next, because there is the potential that this entire world uh, outside of, you know, some of the large elites start to have access to Bitcoin and start to use Bitcoin to trade. And they might be left out of, you know, that future, um, despite how large they are. So it is really probably going to be outside of those large nations, but I don't think it is an unbelievable idea, especially as you start to see all of the really robust custody solutions, banking solutions, um, and large investment firms, uh, you know, really taking Bitcoin seriously. There we go. That's uh, I, I I think you are. I think you're probably right. You know, I think that we, of course, you know, we saw El Salvador do it, but it would be very nice for uh, a democratically elected leader who is not trying to wrest control of the uh, the country do it next. You know, where wherever. Um, that may be, you know, like an official democratic government uh, getting involved. I think you're right. I think it would be a huge step. Um, so there we go, Eric, we can we can wrap up here. Uh, why don't you tell us if someone's interested, if they want to learn a little bit more about Masari, if they want to become a client, why don't you why don't you go ahead and uh, let them know where direction they can go in? Yeah, I would suggest everybody check out Masari.io. That's M-E-S-S-A-R-I. Io. You can see most of the features that we have for free. You can sign up for a trial and you can also find us on Twitter and check out some of our socials uh, with at Misari Crypto. There we go, everyone. I, I would encourage you to check them out. Eric, thank you very much for, uh, for the time. I think this was uh, a fairly interesting discussion. I hope everyone enjoyed it and uh, we will be back next week. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.